Hi everyone, Jeremy here, Walter's co-host on What Really Matters. Today's our 10th episode and we've had some great feedback from listeners so far, which we take seriously and you should keep sending by writing to us at wrm at tabletmag.com, which you can also find in the show notes. We'd also be very grateful if you'd consider rating the podcast and especially leaving a review on Apple or even Spotify or wherever you like to listen to us. These reviews and ratings help other people find the podcast. Thanks for listening, and now to this week's episode. You know, it's our 10th episode today. I thought we'd mark the occasion by reading aloud our worst reviews on Apple Podcasts, which would have been fun, except there really is only a single negative review out of 57 so far, and I I can't make heads or tails of it. Something about Jim Caviezel playing Jesus and the Garden of Eden being fake or something. That was probably from one of my relatives, Jeremy. (laughs) That checks out. Anyway, we're very grateful to our listeners for making the podcast such a success after only 10 episodes. Obviously, the majority of our subscribers so far come from the Anglosphere, but Walter, would you like to know where else the podcast has been topping the charts these last couple months? Sure. So in the news and politics category on the Apple podcast charts, at various points in the last two months, we've been number eight in Algeria, number seven in Greece, number five in Peru, five in Nicaragua, number two in Romania, and drumroll, please, number one, the single most popular politics podcast, according to Apple, in Cyprus. I don't know that we've ever spoken about Cyprus or Romania or Nicaragua, for that matter. But I hope to visit them all soon and bask in my glory. Right. It does seem that our popularity surges as the uh, total population of the country gets smaller. Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's begin with this week's news. First story of the week. Medicare has revealed the first 10 prescription drugs that, for the first time, will face price negotiation. It's an unprecedented flex of market power by Medicare, according to Bloomberg and a centerpiece of Joe Biden's re-election campaign. By getting the negotiation provision into last year's Inflation Reduction Act, Biden notched the win against an industry that had staved off price controls since Medicare started covering retail prescription drugs two decades ago. Prices for the 10 targeted drugs are expected to be halved on average and will be published just weeks before next year's presidential election. I should probably add to Bloomberg's coverage here that All of this is if and only if the price negotiation program is upheld in court. So, Walter, is this news or faux news? Well, it's bad news. It's, uh, you know, I'm glad that uh, people are going to be paying less for some of those prescription drugs. But um, price controls really are a terrible way to deal with a a very important part of the of American industry. you know, if we step back a bit, one of the, people are saying, oh, well, prices are so much lower in other countries than in the United States. And that is often the case because the country's um, single payer systems do negotiate their prices, which is basically a way to try to get American taxpayers to pay part of the load, the cost of developing new drugs. I think there, there are two things to keep in mind when you when you think about drug prices. The first is 
we want more drugs. And uh, lest that be quoted out of context, I'm not talking about recreational drugs. I'm talking about therapeutic drugs. And we want drug comp, we want some of the smartest people in the world to be working night and day to dream up new and effective treatments for diseases, ways of extending the human lifespan, easing pain, all of these things we badly, badly want. And if you think, what's the best legacy we could leave to future generations? How about this? Um, a planet where human beings live longer, stay healthier, and diseases that today are death sentences um, are just are trivial events that you just take a simple treatment and there you are. So now here's the thing. People won't do that kind of work and drug companies won't make those investments unless there's a payoff. And by picking big, popular, money-spending drugs to put these price controls on, uh, i.e. negotiations, uh, we're basically disincentivizing some of the behavior that we most want to promote. All right. But that said, obviously, there's the question of once these drugs are available, we want people to be able to take them. The most expensive drug is a drug that you can't get for any price because it doesn't exist. And so actually, you know, getting, making dr new drugs exist is in itself a form of reducing uh, prices. But so, there, but so are there ways that we could enable companies to charge lower prices while still making really good profits? And of course there are. For example, now under pretty, in my view, pretty crazy U.S. law, a drug that's been approved by the FDA um, and um, as safe is prescribed by millions of doctors, hundreds of thousands of doctors around the country, taken by millions of patients. Ten years later, it turns out this drug causes side effects or whatever. And now the company is locked in decades of multi-billion, in some cases, maybe trillion dollar litigation. Well, you know what? The price on every drug they sell, every product they sell, has to reflect the cost of insuring, et cetera, against that liability. All right. So maybe, you know, just maybe if a drug, if the company didn't provide misleading um, information and the FDA checked it and the FDA approved it, maybe that's the government's responsibility and not the responsibility of the private company. And maybe patients who need help with their care as a result of these things um, shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be able to sue the drug company, but should come to the United States government for compensation. And that's the way we should fund these things. That would reduce the price of drugs significantly. Um, and there are other things, possibly. Maybe people have talked about the idea with these new weight control drugs um, that are very expensive but seem to do a really good job and will clearly reduce healthcare costs overall if, uh, if we can drop the obesity epidemic, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, maybe what the government should do is buy the developed drugs at a very, very high price, um, which can then be administered at much cheaper cost to everybody else. Again, we're incent you've done a wonderful thing. You've found a drug that addresses one of mankind's most haunting problems. Um, and we're not going to punish you for it, but we're also going to structure your reward in a way that people are able to use this miracle.
So unfortunately, the, the President Biden has chosen to step on the pipeline of new drugs in order to pander to constituencies who legitimately enough want cheaper prices for existing ones. And it's too bad. All right. Our second story. The United Auto Workers Union said that 97% of its members voted to authorize strikes against General Motors, Ford Motor, and Stellantis if the union and companies are unable to negotiate new labor contracts, which include UAW demands for a 46% pay raise, 32-hour work week with 40 hours of pay, and the return of pensions. In any case, the result of the vote gives the union's president, Sean Fain, the power to tell workers to walk off the job once the current contracts expire next Thursday, September 14th. Strike authorization votes are usually formalities that pass with these big margins and don't themselves ensure strikes, but this vote came as the newly energized UAW takes a more assertive stance with automakers, which, according to the New York Times, is part of a larger shift in organized labor. News or faux news? I tend to think faux news. I could be wrong about this one, but... um... I think ultimately the, the reality is that the cars of the future are more likely to come from China than from Detroit, that um, uh, we've allowed China to build up a, an overwhelming lead in EVs, which, again, we signaled for years that this was the market of the future. Um, not sure Myself, I'm not so sure that's a great idea, but we've been doing it. And uh, I don't, and I think Dramatic increases of wages and and other things for American auto workers will simply mean that there will continue, as there have been for the last 30 or 40 years, fewer of them every year. And to the extent that the jobs don't go to China, the jobs uh, will disappear by automation. Uh, Robots don't join unions. At least they haven't yet figured out a way to get robots to pay dues to the UAW. Now, this, this whole situation doesn't make me happy. I'm, I, I would like to see American workers making larger incomes, but I don't, I, I don't think this sort of 20th century labor union model, however militantly one tries to, to push it, is, is going to work. And it's largely because technology is changing so quickly and corporate structures are changing so quickly that the world that the labor union was, was built for, where you basically have one job at one factory for life, and you will always be a factory worker, you will always be making this essentially the same product, and by and large doing it with the same technology, in that kind of situation, a labor union makes a lot of sense. But suppose you were a member of the Blockbusters video labor union, and you had a great contract and all of this, and then your company disappears from out from out from under you. So I think we I, I think we have not yet as a society really looked into the problem of how does how do workers protect their rights in a world in which the old industrial union model is less and less relevant to more and more people. And as long as that gap exists, you're going to see these kind of militant union leaders sort of, you know, trying to basically bring back the buffalo to the Great Plains, you know, bring back the jobs. And politicians will demagogue the issue. But ultimately, Americans are going to probably want to buy the cheapest, best cars, the best cars they can get for a given amount of money. And 
American workers are not going to be able to charge the kind of premiums for their labor that they would like to. Okay, final story of the week. Developing economies have long chafed at the dominance of the U.S. dollar in international trade and finance, particularly as America's share of the global economy has more than halved since World War II and powers such as China, India, and Brazil have emerged. De-dollarization has been on the anti-imperialist radar for decades, but the overwhelming power of the U.S. currency meant it amounted to little more than a slogan until recently, according to the Financial Times. But with the expansion of U.S. economic sanctions and the explosion of new technologies for international payments, cracks are starting to appear in the dollar's once impregnable position. China, with its embrace of the digital renminbi and its drive to develop an alternative global payment system, is hoping to take advantage. Walter, is this news or faux news? There's a grain of actual news in the middle of just as is not as unlikely as we would like a complete misunderstanding of the underlying issue by the Financial Times. Um, you know, what, what, what really bothers people most in, the de in developing economies is what used to bother Americans about the British world monetary system in the 19th century, uh, that we don't have as much money as we think we need and want. And so the Americans with the British gold standard, oh, it was so terrible. <clears throat> worst thing in the world, oppressive, monstrous. But again, the real problem was we need to borrow money and the people that want to borrow money want higher interest rates on that money than we want to pay. And unless we agree to pay those rates, they won't give us the money. All right. And that was the core source. And so we kept thinking of, okay, is there some way we can make some other kind of money you know, silver, we coin our money on silver rather than gold. And what they sort of kept failing to realize was, well, you can do that, but the creditors will then charge higher interest rates because they are interested in getting a return on the money that they put in. So um, de-dollarization is not going to solve anybody's problems with uh, the fact that in general, Developing countries are net borrowers, while develop, more developed countries tend to be net net investors. Um, that's kind of a fact of life, and it just moves on. And politicians, again, would far rather in these developing countries blame the evil dollar system for the fact that I can't give you everything that you want, rather than saying, well, actually, my own bad policies have left us in a situation where uh, we're in trouble. No one is interested in making that argument. So, um, but now on the other hand, there is a problem. There is certainly a reality here that the U.S. has grotesquely and foolishly misused sanctions. I sanctioned this. I sanctioned that. I sanctioned thee. I sanctioned thou. Um, and people are rightly sick of it. And one of the reasons that we do this is because sanctions are, again, a cheap and easy way for uh, unscrupulous politicians to make it look like they're doing something when they're not doing very much of anything. So the human rights lobby comes into your office and they're screaming about, you know, in East Corruptistan, there's gender discrimination. 
Well, you, as you know, to the extent that you know anything about international relations as a politician, you're going to say, well, there's actually not, there's nothing we can really do about the government of East Corruptistan's gender policies. Um, we can make a speech, but they will not respond. So I'm going to say, sanction them. And now the human rights group will quietly go away thinking of me as a good guy. The gender discrimination in East Corruptistan will go on as before. And maybe a small amount of commerce is going to be um, diverted to another channel. This is not good strategic thinking. In fact, it's terrible strategic thinking. You can get away with a certain amount of it because in the world, nothing is perfect. And people put up with various uh, instabilities and and, and uh, points of failure. But I think we're overloading the system and we need to think very hard about how do we only use sanctions when they have a chance of working and when the issue genuinely justifies resorting to this tool. All right, that's it for the news of this week. Let's have the big conversation. So we were just talking about dollar dominance and the reasons some countries might have for wanting to declare independence from the dollar, including the expanding use and abuse of the dollar as a sanctions tool. And it does seem that finding a way to at least chip away at the power of the dollar or U.S. finance is one of the issues that unites what are called the BRICS, which, depending on who you ask, is either a loose grouping of economies or a vague geopolitical bloc or an actual international organization, which in any case was founded in 2009 and consists of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Now, for most of my adult life, referring to the BRICS at all, as if it was a term that described any kind of relevant bloc that exists in reality, has mostly only been made almost as a kind of joke, like as a way of referring to one of these ideas that could only have existed in the mind of like a Goldman Sachs economist in the early 2000s or something. But the fact is that the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, the bloc announced that it would be admitting Iran and Saudi Arabia as members and also the UAE, Argentina, Egypt, and Ethiopia, renaming itself BRICS+. Plus. They also announced, maybe a bit more interestingly, a new development bank to challenge Western concepts of helping the global poor by ensuring 30% of what they lend is in local currencies, including digital currencies that don't need to be converted to dollars, and with no conditions attached, unlike the IMF or the World Bank. Now, with the G20 summit in India this weekend, Walter, and with the big news on that front being that fellow BRICS member China will not be attending... What's your sense of the supposedly anti-Western or non-Western bloc positioning itself as a, a legitimate or cohesive alternative to the U.S.-led Western bloc in the world known as the BRICS? You know, the BRICS are, are interesting. I think um, in one of Kurt Vonnegut's novels, he talks about the concept of a grand falloon, which is... Um, you know, an organization or a category whose members actually have nothing in really substantial in common. I think he used it for, you know, like Buckeyes or something like that, people from Ohio. Um, but I think the BRICS are, are and, and remain a, a essentially a grand falloon where Russia and China are allies. India is deeply opposed to, to China. 
bringing Argentina. Argentina is a country that never met a bank it didn't like and never met and never had a loan it wanted to repay. And, uh, you know, the fact that Argentina is drawn by the possibility of a new bank where perhaps you won't have to repay loans or can repay them at currency that has depreciated so rapidly that it's worth only a tiny fraction of the original value of the loan. This brings a joy, you know, a glimmer of light and joy to the eye of any true Peronist. So, um, uh, but I, I suspect that China's appetite for, quote, lending money to countries that will not repay the loans at anything like their true value is going to dramatically limit the ability of countries like Argentina to get the kind of finance that they're hoping they can get. Uh, so if what, if, if the sort of limit on the power of, or on the scale of the BRICS bank is simply that, then uh, I don't think we're going to see a lot of development. And in general, if a bank runs on the, the idea that a borrower provides funds, which then, I mean, a lender provides funds, which a borrower then repays on time and at an appropriate rate of interest, um, it's not clear how a Chinese-led or a BRICS-led bank would operate differently from any other bank. And again, but if it operates on a different principle, which is the borrowers don't have to repay as much or whatever, it's, it's not going it, to be the world's largest bank, is all I can say. So at that level, it's, it's, it's kind of incoherent. Um, where I think we in the U.S. should be thinking a good deal more is where, where the BRICS concept has some significant legitimacy is if you really look at the in, international institutional architecture, it is ridiculous. It is absurd. And it gives Europeans in particular a place that they really no longer deserve. So, you know, the idea that the UN Security Council has former great power France, former great power Britain, perhaps former great power Russia on it, but there's no India, no Japan, even no Brazil, which actually was a member of the um, uh, equivalent of the Security Council in the League of Nations. Um, we ne almost never think about that, but people in those countries look at you know the international architecture and they think, no, this is not representative. It's not legitimate. They are, in fact, correct. It is not legitimate. Um, and you cannot say to the 1.4 billion people of India that your voice in the world should be equivalent to that of Luxembourg. You both have one seat in the General Assembly. So, you know, this is, there is, there is a, a legitimate perception that drives hostility to existing world institutions. On top of that, in the current international system, the way things work, um, the sort of concerns of Western NGOs and civil society are heavily privileged. So, um, you know, Western foundations who have enough money to basically drown the NGO groups and civil society of 
any other countries feel they can sort of swank in and throw money to their favored clients and everybody should just shut up and accept this as you know they they can astroturf any kind of movement they want anywhere they want in the world and any attempt to interfere with that represents some kind of fundamental assault on human rights and human decency now to be fair many times when governments attack foreign funding of their NGOs and civil society movements, they are, in fact, trying to attack fundamental human rights and human decency. Governments are as, you know, politicians are as unscrupulous and demagogic in other countries as they are here. But um, we still have to bear in mind that people in most of the world do not now consider the way the world works to be acceptable. Here's another example. If you're an 18-year-old college student in America, or high school student, and you want to take a gap year before you uh, go to college, or you finish college and you want to take a gap year before you work, so what you decide you want to do is backpack around the world, you know, backpack through Southeast Asia or whatever it might be. Uh, your parents may be horrified, but in fact, you'll just be able to pick up your good old U.S. passport and pretty much go almost anywhere you want, no questions asked. If you're a Turkish or an Indian kid or from dozens of other countries and you want the exact same thing, you want to backpack around, just see the world, encounter the world, no one is going to let you. You're not going to be able to take that passport into the EU, into the U.S., unless you go through what is sometimes an incredibly time-consuming and difficult process. Now, obviously, we have good reasons for, for wanting to do that. A lot of people would not come here to backpack. They would come here to stay. Um, although at the moment, since we've decided not to enforce any immigration laws along our entire southern border, you know, I'm not sure how consistent it is for us to complain about airports when we've got like open season on uh, on the borders. So actually, just get a visa to Mexico, walk over the river, and uh, and backpack all you want. But but in any case, people look at this and they quite rightly see boiling injustice, and they quite rightly resent a world system and the powers that enforce that world system. All right. Now, we cannot solve all the problems of global poverty. We cannot solve the fact that that if we did have anything like free immigration, the social and political consequences of that would be unbearable. All right. So we're not talking about establishing a utopian world. But I think for I think Americans need to enter much more seriously into conversations with people in some of these other countries about real reform of international architecture, if for no other reason than that institutions that don't conform to power realities don't work. So the UN Security Council actually does is not a very effective instrument because agreement among those powers doesn't necessarily, you know, determine what will then happen on the ground. One interesting thing in there is that, you know, beginning to see some of the Bretton Woods institutions as ineffective or no longer having enough political legitimacy, 
no longer seeing the UN as effective or legitimate, getting tired of the various conditions and demands made by the State Department and things like the European Trade Commission, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these are all developments that I think most people would associate not just with Indian or Brazilian politics, but with the last several years of American politics. You know, it maybe started with the Trump administration, but it's not like the Biden administration wants to rebalance the WTO or the Security Council to accommodate Chinese expectations. And I can't really think of a time since maybe Obama's first term when appeals to the UN had any kind of purchase in American politics. So I guess my question here is, insofar as the BRICS expresses a conception of international power that does appeal to countries like India and Brazil and maybe the Saudis and the UAE. Isn't this more of like a golden opportunity than some kind of threat to American power? I think that is a kind of a natural path for American diplomacy to explore. And uh, again, uh, it'll go against the grain of a lot of people in the foreign policy establishment because the old model of international institutions was, was very much like the European Union. That is, these are things, national sovereignty is seen as something very dangerous and that if we have too much of it, we'll have World War III, we'll, you know, we won't be able to solve problems like climate change or whatever. And so the point of in international institutions was to create a set of rules and laws that would bind governments and, um, you know, to some degree turn democratic sovereign, limit the sovereignty of democracy and hand it over to kind of administrative agencies and the great and the good. Maybe there's a, there are other ways to think about the central problems of, of international institutions. Maybe they should do things like trying to protect sovereignty more uh, while also facilitating cooperation of sovereign states on issues of joint interests or concern. Um, it's, or maybe, you know, the goal of having international institutions be universal may not be as important as we thought it is. The General Assembly did not grow more effective as it, as it added more members. And by the way, I think this will apply to the BRICS as well. When you put in countries that hate each other, like Iran and Saudi Arabia, you already have countries that are rivals like India and China. This is actually not a recipe for a coherent and effective international organization. And again, you can see in a sense that China and Russia forced the um, expansion of the BRICS. India was much less enthusiastic about that. And now Russia is staying away, for, uh, sorry, China is staying away. Xi Jinping is, is, is not going to the G20 summit in India. So it's almost as if you're getting competing versions of international organizations, even kind of within a reform movement or a movement primarily led by reform-oriented powers. So I do think that this is an opportunity for Americans. Now, one problem is our, our dear European friends and our dear Canadian friends won't necessarily approve of this. Uh, they will, in fact, I would say, bitterly resent and energetically and cleverly oppose 
efforts to rejigger the world system in ways that, let's just say, conform better to current reality. And um, they can they can be uh, very formidable opponents. Um, and they may not be able to make things happen, but they're much better at preventing things from happening that they don't like. So, um, and for, for a lot of people in the American foreign policy universe, Atlanticism is the foundation of their idea of, of what international politics is all about. And so maybe if the, if the U.S. were to move away from a primary partnership with Europe toward primary partnerships with countries like India or Brazil, whose views in, on some issues are really quite different from ours and from the Europeans, and you started having an international architecture that expressed a non-Atlantic, expressed an Indo-Pacific or hemispheric views, this would be an issue. But also you have, no, look, no one likes Italy more than I do. I love going to Italy. I have many great friends in Italy. If, if I found out I needed to spend three years in Italy for some reason, I would have zero regrets. But should Italy be a member of the G7? Uh, you know, is, is Canada really one of the seven most important countries in the world? Is, should it be on that, on that committee? And India not be on it? I don't think so. So how do we find ways of deepening cooperation with new partners who we really urgently need, but we don't, you know, we don't actually want to open a feud with our European friends, our Atlantic friends either. We do actually need friends in all parts of the world. So it's not, there's not some simple route uh, to, to getting there, but, but there's really a lot of work to be done and a lot of thinking to be done. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. I was recently gifted a few volumes of a series of kids' books called Little People, Big Dreams for our two-year-old. They're these you know, sweet, <laughs> sweet little toddler-length biographies of like Neil Armstrong and David Attenborough and Elvis and Picasso and, and so on. And I remember from when I was a bit older. I, I hope they left out some of the details in the Picasso biography. I'm not sure I would want my toddler knowing too much about the love life of Pablo Picasso. Right. I think these were probably published, uh, you know, pre whenever that Brooklyn art exhibit uh, was. But, you know, I, I remember also from when I was maybe five or six or something and having those illustrated biographies of like Frederick Douglass and Teddy Roosevelt and Martin Luther King and, and et cetera. It made a big impression on me and probably predisposed me to the great man or great woman theory of history. But I think for a lot of our listeners who do like nonfiction, you know, biography and especially historical political biographies are a still kind of persistently favorite genre, especially for those in their teens and early twenties, you know, these can be a real impactful source of inspiration and even emulation. So tell us, Walter, what's the one political biography you'd recommend to our listeners, maybe especially our listeners who are just starting out in their adult lives? You know, Ron Chernow's 
biography of Alexander Hamilton is pretty good. And uh, for that matter, his life of Grant is pretty good. So um, those would be, I think, two books that would uh, start, because they're not just lives of the man, of the person. They are descriptions of an era. And they, they help you understand the big issues of a big time. Um, an, an, an interesting pair would be, and of course, you know, you ask me for one and I'm giving you a bunch, but that's how it is with books. Um, I think Andrew Roberts' life of Winston Churchill and then Winston Churchill's life of the Duke of Marlborough. I think if you read those two things together, you would really have a very, very, you would have a much richer understanding of world history, politics, and human character, maybe than you do now. All right, there you have it. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time.